So we're in Romans chapter 4. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to to Romans 4. And we're going to be looking in depth at verses 5 through 8. And if you put a finger in Psalms 32. Psalms 32. So Romans 4 verse 5 and Psalms uh, 32. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the glory of the gospel. We thank you as we trust you in faith that we're justified, we're redeemed, that your wrath has been appeased. Would you grow us in this understanding that we're justified through faith, the glory of the gospel, that it's not our work, but it's your work in what you have uh, done for us. So Lord, would you bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. It's such an important time to put Christ at the focus and also the Word of God at the focus. So many things are happening in culture. So many things are clamoring for our attention. And life is busy, isn't it? I'm sure that making the time to come and be here tonight on a Wednesday night was was a sacrifice for you. To make time, to find time, to be in God's Word on a daily basis— is very difficult. One of the things that choked out the word of God in the parable of the sower was the cares of this life. I just got so busy, I didn't spend any time in God's word, and so God's word wasn't planted in my heart and mind. Through God's grace, through the power of the Spirit, I think the greatest discipline that we can form in our lives is to read God's word on a a daily basis. So if you're doing that, I want to encourage you, don't, don't lose sight of that. Don't, don't let anything take that time with the Lord, sitting at his feet in the word, sitting at his feet in, in prayer. If you've never developed that and the word is so intimidating uh, to you, you're like, man, I, I just don't know if I can study and understand uh, the word of God, is know that the spirit of God lives inside of you and God wrote his word in a way to communicate with us. He, he wants to communicate with us even more than we want to receive that uh, communication. And there's been a lie that's been propagated for a long, long time. I think Satan's at the center of that lie, and it's that you can't understand the word of God. And nothing can be further from the truth. And it's not like we'll understand everything all at once, but as we spend time in God's word, God will illuminate uh, the scriptures uh, to us. So pick a book of the Bible. Read the Gospel of Mark. Read, read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Read the book of Proverbs or, or Psalms. Or say, I'm going to endeavor to read the New Testament. Pray before you start reading. Approach the scriptures with a pencil, a pen to underline uh, verses. Maybe a notepad where you're writing uh, things down. I may be a little bit old school, as I would encourage you to have a Bible that's not on your phone. We've got Bibles at the doors, and we would love to to give you one. And the reason why this is important is because Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, ESPN, and news are not in this, right? It's so easy to start reading my Bible on the iPad and get distracted. Well, I'm just going to go over here and check this really quick and check that, and I got a text and, and all those kinds of things, and then I've missed the time in, in God's Word. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I think it's great having God's Word on our phones. You know, you pull it up everywhere you go and can spend some time in the Word of God. But having a printed Bible really does remove uh, distractions. I was studying Tyndale a little bit this, this week. And if you're familiar with his life, he lived in the 1500s in England. And he wanted to translate the Bible, the Greek New Testament, into English. It hadn't been translated into English. And can you believe that King Henry VIII didn't want the Bible in the common language? And the reason why is he and the priests of that day thought the common people couldn't be trusted with God's word. So they hunted down William Tyndale to the point where he eventually was executed. One of his friends ratted him out to King Henry VIII, and he was strangled to death. But he had gotten the New Testament translated prior to his death and was working on the Old Testament, the Hebrew, into English before he was killed. The last thing that he said, his dying breath, was God open up the eyes of the king. Open up the eyes of the king. A few years after his death, some of his friends went to the king and took his work but put a new name on it and called it the Matthew Bible instead of the William Tyndale Bible. And they extended it to the king and pitched it to him saying, I think that we need to get this to the common people. And for some reason, King Henry VIII said yes. And he allowed the Bibles to be printed and placed in parishes. There was a Bible in each parish that was changed so someone wouldn't, wouldn't steal it. William Tyndale did such a good job on his translation of the New Testament that the revised English version, which is a very trusted version, 75% of that version is William Tyndale's work, and he did it by himself. I mean, that's how well he knew the Greek language and how well he translated it into uh, English. But at the center of all of that were leaders and even, quote-unquote, spiritual leaders that didn't think the Bible should be in the hands of the everyday person, of the common person. The common person can't understand the scriptures. And here we are some 500 years later, and that lie is still going around. Like, like you can't understand the scriptures. And God has communicated in a way, as we spend time in the word of God, that you can understand the word. Now, this is why I'm emphasizing this. It's because there's more craziness than ever. And there's so many things to get our attention and get us pulled into. And honestly, some of those things are more attractive to our flesh. They really are. It, it's, it's flashy. It's shiny. It's, it's, it's there. And the word of God is powerful and it's living and it's truthful and it declares who God is to us. So we're really blessed to have God's word. I mean, we're holding God's word in our hands. We have the spirit of God inside of us who equips us to study the word. Now, what does that have to do with our Bible study tonight? Absolutely nothing. That was just for free. That's just because you came on Wednesday night. That was to just get you all charged up about studying your Bible, all right? But what we're going to study tonight is that forgiveness from faith. This section of Romans lays out to us that the only way we're justified before a holy God is through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen? Amen. And we receive that through faith. It almost sounds too good to be true. That it's not based on my work. That it's based on the work of Jesus Christ. 
It's a gift of grace through faith. So Paul takes two Old Testament examples and shows that they were justified through faith. The first is Abraham. We talked about Abraham a lot this weekend, that he was declared righteous. God put righteousness to his account through faith when he believed God's promise that God would give him children and his children would be the descendants like the descendants of the sky. The second is David, King David. And that's where we pick up in these few verses. In verse 5, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. But to him who does not work, it's counter our flesh, it's counter what we would think, that we have to try to earn or deserve our, our salvation, that somehow we can work for it. But as we believe on him, as we believe on Jesus, Jesus is the trustworthy object of our faith. It's not that our faith is highlighted, but it's who our faith is placed in that's highlighted. He justifies the ungodly. Only God and his goodness can justify the ungodly. His faith is accounted to him for righteousness. Just as David described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So God gives righteousness. He imputes it. He puts it to your account apart from works. And this is where our text is quoted. Psalms 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So turn with me to Psalms 32. We're going to study Psalms 32 in depth tonight as David experienced the forgiveness of the Lord through faith. We experience the, the forgiveness of the Lord through faith. The background to Psalms 32, as we look at the content of Psalms 32, it seems clear the sin that David's referring to is his sin with Bathsheba. Committing adultery with Bathsheba, having Uriah killed, covering up his sin. For almost nine months, it seems that David's plan worked. Nobody knew, nobody saw. Just between him and Bathsheba, nobody understood why David had Uriah sent to the front lines and sabotaged, killed intentionally in battle. Has married Bathsheba. Everybody assumes they've had a, a honeymoon child, a honeymoon baby, and this baby's growing and growing and growing. And just right before the baby's born, Nathan the prophet goes and confronts David on his sin. And we've talked about this, that, that David was confronted through a story of a rich man who goes to his poor neighbor, takes the poor neighbor's lamb when he has a guest instead of going to his own cattle, to his, his own flock. David gets angry. He wants this rich man killed and Nathan, under God's guidance, said, David, you're the man. You are that man. A lot of times that's a compliment. You're the man. <laughs> Not in that instance. But to David's credit, he's convicted before the Lord. And he confesses his sin to the Lord. In Psalms 32 and Psalms 51 described to us David's repentance, his confession of sin. His faith in God's goodness 
in the face of his own sin, believing and receiving God's forgiveness. We know from the law there was no forgiveness for adultery and murder. The law requires justice, and David was to be killed, capital punishment. The only way that David can be forgiven is based upon the goodness of God. This is actually a a bit of a crisis and a trial of faith for all of us. Our sin. We sin against God. We do things that we never thought that we would do. And the gospel declares to us that God forgives us because of the greatness of what Jesus has done. Because of his death, his burial, his resurrection. But it can be hard for us to receive that forgiveness. Now remember, David is a man after God's own heart. David's walking with the Lord. And he chose sin, just like we do sometimes. If we don't receive the forgiveness of God afresh in our lives, what happens is we live in guilt and shame and condemnation. We never really come back to that place of full fellowship uh, with God. So there's a lot of application for us to receive the forgiveness of God that we see David walking through. So verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Number one, it's the blessedness of forgiveness. The blessedness of forgiveness. What's a, a day a moment in time, an experience that you would say, man, I felt so blessed. I was thinking about that today. And hands down, when I proposed to Amber and she said yes, I was like, yeah, right? The last thing I wanted Amber to do when I proposed was like, well, let me pray about it. <laughs> Prayer's awesome, but not, not at that moment. I'd hoped she'd already prayed about it. And When our kids were born, when our four kids were born, such an exciting time. I think with all four of our kids, I was way more uptight than Amber was. And it's like, I'm not even the one that was pregnant, right? It's like, is this going to go good? And oh man, I just can't wait to meet this child. And when the kids were born and and to meet them and to hold them, man, blessed. Like words cannot even begin to put that into motion. October 2019, we went on a missions trip to minister to Annie in Darwin. And it was just a fun missions trip in the, in the Andes Mountains. And with Darwin and Pastor Kent and Pastor Dan, we got to hike a mountain there called Rainbow Mountain. And I love the mountains. And I never would have thought that I would have been in the Andes Mountains. I, I remember being in school as probably a third or fourth grader and and looking at an atlas and looking at the Andes Mountains and going, oh man, those just, those just look cool. And there I was climbing a mountain and Kent was sucking on oxygen, but that's, well, you can ask him about that. But it was blessed. It was just like, man, I'm blessed. Like I never would have imagined having this type of, of experience. And here, David, he says, we're blessed. There's, there's joy in our lives whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, these two words are similar, but they have different meaning. Sin means to miss the mark. You're actually trying to hit the target. 
You're trying to obey God. You're trying to do good, but you fall short and, and you sin. Transgression is willful rebellion. Transgression is, I know what God wants me to do, but I'm not going to do it. And for David, there was transgression and sin. When he saw Bathsheba, he had a choice to make where he could either turn and run and flee from lust, but instead he indulged and requested Bathsheba come to his palace. He transgressed. He, he stepped over the will of God, the, the command of God. And in our hearts, as believers, unfortunately, there's sin and there's also transgression. And we're blessed in knowing that our sin is forgiven. And the way that our sin is forgiven is through faith as we trust in the finished work of Christ. Now, now this shouldn't give us a flippant attitude about transgression and sin. The book of Romans is going to get to that. What shall we say then? Shall I continue in sin that grace would abound? God forbid. If we take the forgiveness of God through faith and our response then is, I'm just going to sin because I know that God's forgiven me and will forgive me, I suggest to you we don't understand the nature of God sending his son to die for us. It should grieve our hearts. It should, it should break our hearts that we've transgressed and we've sinned against God. And we see that in Psalms 32 and also in Psalms 51. But there is a, an absolute blessedness that comes through knowing that you're forgiven through faith by trusting in the finished work of Christ. Do you know that? Do you know that? Are you walking in guilt and shame and condemnation? Or are you walking in the joy of the Lord of knowing that your sins are forgiven, that knowing that your transgressions are forgiven by God? The end of verse 2 is interesting. It says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity or to lay to our account, in whose spirit there is no deceit. How could... David's spirit not have any deceit. It was deceitful for him to have adultery with Bathsheba and try to cover it up, to have Uriah killed and to cover it up. How can he be in a place where now his spirit doesn't have guile or deceit? And this speaks to the cleansing work that God does in our lives. Turn, turn with me to Psalms 51 real quick. Psalms 51 Another psalm, a sister psalm, David writes as he's confessing his sin. I think we can all relate. Psalms 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God, I need you to create a clean heart in me. And renew a steadfast spirit in me because of my sin. Because of my transgression. And God is good enough to do that. He's powerful enough to do that. Let's go back to Psalms 32. What happens when we don't confess our sin? It's the drought of disobedience. Instead of experiencing the blessedness of forgiveness, it's the drought of disobedience. In verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. 
my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. David chose to keep silent. I'm sure there was the conviction of God upon David's heart and life to confess before God, to make things right with others, with those that he had sinned against, but he, he chose to, to keep silent. And there's this aspect with sin where we want to hide, don't we? Adam and Eve, what was their response when they sinned? They, they hid from, from the presence of God. I'm sure that there's areas of our lives, there's to some degree where God has been calling us out on sin, but we've been keeping silent. We've been holding it and pretending to hide it. And when this happens, David says, my bones, they grew old and groaning all day long. Now, even when we're not walking in unrepentant sin, our bones feel old, don't they? It's like, why do we want to add to this? But it had this physical effect upon David. When we're hiding sin, it's a burden to carry. When am I going to be found out? David had to be thinking through, did anybody else see? Does someone else know that I've committed adultery with Bathsheba? When our son is born, is someone going to say, huh, that looks a lot like Uriah. Something doesn't seem quite right here. And that burden that he was carrying. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. God in his love for David continued to pursue him. And God in his love for us, he wants fellowship with us. So he will pursue us. David was feeling this heavy hand of, of God's conviction. God's correction. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. The drought of disobedience. Now hear me out on this is not all dry seasons with the Lord are from sin, but sometimes they are. Sometimes they are. Sometimes God just allows us to go through a drought and there's, it's not because of sin in our lives. We'll be clear on that, but he's growing us through that, that wilderness. Please don't hear if you're going through some kind of trial that it's because of sin in, in, in your life. Or you're going through some kind of sickness. Well, it must be because of, of sin in your life. I, we, rain falls on the just and the unjust. The, these bodies, they, they fall apart. But there are times in our lives, if we're walking in disobedience, where God loves us enough to experience a drought. David says this vitality that was within me, it turned into the drought of summer. Think Middle East, dry, arid climate. David knows drought. You go just south of Bethlehem, David's hometown, and you start to get into the Dead Sea area. Man, and talk about desert. David's saying, I, I'm feeling like this desert that I'm so acquainted with. I would picture David as a man with vitality, wouldn't you? He's a worshiper. He was a warrior. I mean, at one point he gets so excited about the Lord and the Ark of the Covenant that he's dancing in his boxers to, to the point where his wife's embarrassed. Like, 
I think everybody's like, yeah, I'd like to spend some time with David because of the vitality that was the life that was in him. Probably his close friends and his family members like, what's wrong with David? You know, well, there was a lot wrong. He was walking in sin. He was, he was walking in rebellion to God. And in hindsight, David was able to see it. But when he was going through it, he was blinded by his sin. And this leads to the freedom of confession in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. And I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I acknowledged my sin to you. This is what God's longing for. This is what God is waiting for in us, is to acknowledge our sin to confess our sin. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then look at this promise that God gave. And you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. How could God forgive David? Because he's gracious. He's gracious. There's no allowance for it in the law, but God chose to forgive David's iniquity. David didn't experience the relief of forgiveness until he got to that place of confession. In 1 John chapter 1, it says, If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As you study 1 John 1, what's at play there is our fellowship with the Lord. Not our salvation, our fellowship with the Lord. John says, you have access to the same fellowship with Jesus that I do so that your joy can be made full. Far out. Think about the kind of fellowship that John the disciple had with Jesus. We can have that same kind of fellowship. And in our fellowship with Jesus, our joy is made full. Goes on to say, if we walk in darkness, we don't have fellowship with Christ or with one another. As believers, as God's children, like David, we can get off track, be in darkness. Our salvation's not lost, thankfully, but our fellowship with God is not what it once was. And our fellowship with the body of believers is not what it once was. That's the context of 1 John 1, 9. But if you confess your sins... He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Confessing our sin is acknowledging to God, this is my sin before you. I'm not trying to hide it. God, you're right and I'm wrong in my sin. It's coming out of darkness and into the light. And as we come out of darkness into the light, thankfully because of the blood of Jesus, God provides forgiveness. So let's think about this in a deeper level with Romans in mind. So we're justified, declared righteous, past tense, forgiven of our sin, all of our sin, past, present, and future. So why do I need to confess a current sin in my life because God's already forgiven all my sin? Does that make sense? Is it true that God's forgiven all of your sin? Yes, you're justified. The reason that we're confessing our sin is not to receive salvation again, but it's restored fellowship with God. We're coming back into the light. God loves us enough to not fellowship with us 
when we're in that place of, of darkness so that we'll miss him, we'll miss the light, we'll meet that, miss that sweet fellowship with believers and confess our sin uh, to the Lord. It's a powerful promise in James chapter 5 in regards to confession. It says, confess your faults to one another and pray for one another and you will be healed. We're not going to brothers or sisters in Christ asking them to pray for us in order to receive forgiveness from God. That, that comes from God. But the humility of having to open up to another brother or sister in Christ and ask them to pray for us, God uses that humility and that prayer to bring about healing in our lives. I've seen the Lord do it time and time again. Trust the word of God. God, I'm going to obey your word here. I'm going to confess my faults. I'm going to come out of hiding. I'm going to confess it to you. I'm going to confess it to a trusted brother or sister in Christ. And the time of refreshing comes of knowing God's forgiveness. It's the freedom that comes from confession. Verse 6, it's the comfort of deliverance. Imagine the kind of deliverance that David experienced even in the midst of his own sin. God in his grace didn't abandon David. He, he was allowed to continue to be king. There were definite consequences for David's sin, but God was his refuge in verse 6. For this cause, everyone who is ungodly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. What David experienced with the Lord, we can experience of the Lord. Surely in a flood of great waters, when, when we're overwhelmed, even in our own sin and compromise, there's this protection that the Lord provides. They shall not come, come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. It almost doesn't seem like it should go with this psalm in a sense. How is it that God would deliver David? How is it that God would be a hiding place for David as he's an adulterer and a murderer? And God's not condoning his actions. And God allowed him to experience consequences. But God didn't stop loving David. And he was faithful to David. And he allowed David to hide in the Lord. You are my hiding place. And this is so rich with meaning for David because he spent a season of his life hiding from Saul who took all of the army of Israel and hunted David to try to kill him. Yet he was safe. He would literally hide in the caves, hide in the mountains. And he's saying, I'm not hiding in caves and mountains. I'm hiding in you. God, you're my, my hiding place. What's coming against you? Is it, is it your own sin? Is it the sin of others? Is it the circumstances that we find ourselves in? We can hide ourselves in God. We can find him to be our refuge. Trust him. Enjoy that sweet fellowship with him, that communion with him. And you shall surround me with songs of deliverance. David had songs, literal songs, of God's deliverance in his life. We're reading one of them. Here, God was faithful to deliver him from his own sin. Aren't you thankful that God is faithful enough to deliver us from our own sin? To convict us of our sin. To bring us out of 
hiding and shame and, and rebellion. But there's other times where David experienced victory over Goliath and victory over Saul and victory over their enemies that surrounded them. Thinking back in difficult times in my life, there has been a song that has stood out to me in the midst of that difficulty, in the midst of that challenge. Usually it comes from our time together here in worship at Rocky Mountain Calvary. And there'll be a worship song in that season that will really stand out. I was in the car today and driving and heard a song from back when I was in high school that really ministered to me when I was in high school years ago, back in high school. And it took me back to where I was at and that place in my life and how God delivered me and he was faithful and he, he provided comfort. And, and that's what's so wonderful about a song. You can replay one of those songs of deliverance from 10 years ago in your life, five months ago in your life, and all of a sudden it takes you right back to that moment in time of God, God's faithfulness. He provides those songs of deliverance. Remember those songs of deliverance from the past and look for new songs of deliverance in the presence. God wants to give you a new song in the midst of the current challenge, in the midst of the, the current uh, difficulty. It's, it's comfort. It's the comfort of deliverance. Lastly, we see guidance and humility. Guidance and humility or God providing guidance when we're humble. And this is part of what happens as we transgress and as we sin and confess and receive God's forgiveness through faith is hopefully there's a humility that's provided in our lives. Hopefully we understand that we're capable of all sin underneath the sun, that we need God's protection to keep us from sin and to keep us from evil. And we begin to, to look to the Lord. I'm sure David wished that he was looking to God's guidance in this season where he committed adultery with Bathsheba. It didn't happen overnight. David chose to send Joab to battle for the first time in his life, his general, while he stayed at home in the palace and kicked back. Once we stop entering into the battlefield that God has called us to, we're susceptible to sin, aren't we? The battle's hard. We want to get out of the battlefield. But sometimes the battle is the safest place for us to be. If that's where God called us. If that's where he placed us. We find that David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, he was sleeping in. He had the luxury of, man, I'm just going to kick back. Nothing wrong with rest. Sees Bathsheba and he wasn't looking for the Lord's guidance. But now in this place of brokenness, it's his prayer. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. I want you to hear this in the issue of forgiveness and trusting God's forgiveness in our lives is a lot of times when we sinned, we feel like, God, you can't forgive me. You don't love me. And you've rejected me. You don't have a path for me. Couldn't be furthest from the truth. God still loves you. Jesus died for you. He is ready to forgive you and restore you. And guess what? His loving eyes are ready to guide you. One of the things that God really loves is a repentant sinner who's broken. 
that's ready to receive his guidance. The only time in scripture that we see God depicted being in a hurry is the prodigal son. The prodigal had taken the inheritance, squandered it. It's better to be a servant in my father's house. The father was looking every day for the son to come back. Is that Johnny? It's Johnny. And the father runs to the son. He's in a hurry to restore the son. God's ready to guide you. Have you gotten yourself in a mess because of sin? David understands. It's a mess. It's difficult. There's going to be consequences for his sin because God loves him. But he knows God's ready to guide me. He he is ready to instruct me. Now I'm ready to listen. I have the, the humility. And I will guide you with my eye. This speaks of a loving relationship that God has with us as our Heavenly Father. Every parent knows what it's like to guide our children with our eyes. You better not do that, right? All I got to do is look. In our family, we call it the the Cartier Unibrow. I've got it. I've, I've inherited it from past generations. And like, I can do that and like, you don't even see my eyes. Where'd my eyes go, right? When my dad was looking at me with that same furrowed brow, it's like, okay, I understand here. I, I better knock it off. And though that feels stern, it's a lot better than what's coming if you don't acknowledge that as a child, right? Like, usually it's coming because there's, there's some correction that needs to happen and but then there's a lot of times as a parent where you're, you're guiding your kids with your eyes and it's, it's love. You're looking at them with love. And they're looking into your eyes and they can see the love that, that you have for them. And maybe you're saying, I never got that from, from my parents. Well, you, you get that from your Heavenly Father. To where our hearts are so sensitive to, towards the Lord and we're looking to Him that all we've got to do is look to his eyes and he guides us. And you're saying, well, well, that sounds really hyper-spiritual. I can't see God's eyes. I need some help here. The way this works out practically is what we started talking about at the beginning, and that's the word of God. God's word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Lord, I'm giving you time in my day for you to guide me. I need you to guide me. I need you to convict me. I I need you to show me what I need to learn about you. Here's the alternative. If God's not guiding us uh, with his eye, do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with a bit and a bridle, else they will not come near you. David was a horseman. As a warrior, having horses and understood, you've got to put the bridle with the horse. And then the horse will obey. We don't want God to have to put a bridle or a bit in our mouth to grab us with a rein to get us to go to the right or to the left. We want to have a sensitive heart, a teachable heart before the Lord. It really speaks of stubbornness in verse 9. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround them. 
David understands this, that this is part of sin. This is part of transgression. When, when we sin, there are sorrows. There are consequences. Why does God allow us to experience consequences? Is it because he doesn't forgive us? No, he does forgive us. It's teaching us. It's helping us to, to understand to not go down that road again. But he who trusts in the Lord... As we trust in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. This goes back to this issue of faith. As we trust in him, mercy flows into our lives. Here's our response. As we study the scriptures, we're we're looking for our application. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Just a hunch, just a theory. But I don't really think that David went through his life with his head down in guilt and shame. I think that he was genuinely repentant, sorry, broken, remorseful for his adultery and for his murder. Something that he never forgot. But because of faith and the grace of God... I do think David experienced restored fellowship with God and rejoiced in the fact that he was forgiven. And what marked his life wasn't his sin. What marked his life is that he had received God's forgiveness. David literally walked around as a man with a second chance. He knew that he deserved to be killed. That he deserved death. But instead of death, forgiveness was extended to him. So he says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice and shout for joy. Our response as God's people is let there be joy in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. I'm forgiven. I'm blessed. Here I've experienced the, the blessedness of these things in my life. But I'm so much more so I'm blessed because I'm forgiven by the Lord. Forgiveness from faith. Forgiveness by faith. As we celebrate communion tonight, let's enter into the joy of the Lord. Let's enter into the forgiveness that God has provided for us. The fullness of the gospel that we're justified and we're declared righteous. As we take communion, let's allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. We're instructed in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves as we take communion. Lord, is there, is there anything in me that I am not seeing? Or maybe I know full well the Holy Spirit's been convicting me of this. The hand of the Lord's been heavy upon me. Don't wait till we're exposed. Don't, don't wait for God to send Nathan the prophet. God loves us enough. He will expose us. But let's confess. Let's agree with God. Let's, let's remember what we've been missing. Oh, that, that sweet fellowship with the Lord. And you have a, a loving father who's provided a sacrifice in his son. As you confess your sin to him, he is going to forgive you. And he's going to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Take that next step. Ask a brother or sister in Christ to, to pray for you. Ladies, reach out to Ladies in Christ, men, reach out to, to other men. Husbands and wives, reach out to, to each other. Take advantage of the prayer team. 
Don't have to go into detail, but this is what's been going on in my heart. Would you pray for me? I need God to do a work of deliverance in my life. I need him to restore to me the joy of my salvation. I need him to create in me a clean heart. I don't have the ability to do that. What David could do is repent and confess his sin. What David could not do is provide the forgiveness. God provides the forgiveness. What David could do is be teachable in the future. But what David could not do is provide a clean heart. He needed God to provide a clean heart. So our responsibility, repentance and confession. Brokenness, humility, teachability. God's promise, he'll provide forgiveness. God's promise, he'll create the clean heart. And here's the application as we go through the week is rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to go here because it's a Wednesday night. Just bear with me. This, this may be the worst thing I've ever said. But I have a pastor friend of mine that lives out in Oregon. And he says this phrase, drive it like you stole it. Right? <laughs> And for some reason, that just stands out to me. Like, we'll be ending our conversation, and he'll be like, man, Eric, have a good day. Drive it like you sold it, man, you know? And like you stole it, you know? And the nature of that is, obviously, you don't want to go steal a car. But you're, you're owning it, in a sense. You're, you're like, man, I'm, I'm entering in, into this. Just because you're wondering, I don't know what it's like to steal a car, but... <laughs> <laughs> so, I want you to drive forgiveness like you stole it. You know what I'm saying? Like, own it. Like, I'm forgiven. This, this is what God has done for me. And a life of faith is one of rejoicing. The practical application is, God, I'm forgiven. And so I am going to stand in that forgiveness. I'm going to rejoice in that forgiveness. I'm going to declare that forgiveness uh, to others. Would you stand with me and let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for providing what we could never provide for ourselves, forgiveness. Thank you that it comes through faith. It doesn't come through works. It doesn't come through reading our Bible or trying to be a good person or tithing or any other thing, Father. Being a good parent, a, a good dad or a good mom or a faithful spouse, all those things important, but forgiveness only comes through the blood of Jesus. And because of your great sacrifice, Jesus, we want to be right with you tonight. We confess our sin to you. We invite you to search us and know us as we take communion. And Holy Spirit, would, would you minister to our hearts the power of the blood of Jesus? And would you create in us a clean heart? Would you restore in us the joy of our salvation? And may we go out being led by your eye. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.